Well, good morning. It's good to be with each of you this morning. Hope you're all doing well. Got this lapel mic on this morning. Let's see. It sounds like sounds like it's working. So I thought I'd try to get comfortable with this a little bit this morning. If I'm comfortable enough to, to preach this morning from the book of the Song of Solomon, I need to be comfortable. Move around a little bit. Some of you know, as you're aware of the text, you see it there in your worship guide. I just mentioned it. You may be on the edge of your seat in anticipation, or you may be on the edge of your seat about to bolt out the front door. So, Pastor Charlie, you may you may need to go secure that door. But this is what we do here, right? We value expositional preaching. We walk through every book of the Bible. And Pastor Tim, in his wisdom, as he's organized this Old Testament sermon series, he chose for this book, this morning to fall upon me. (laughs) It's no shock to you. We live in a culture, we live in a day, in a society where God's design for sexual expression, it's misunderstood, it's outdated, and oftentimes it's outright dismissed. Many view the Bible, they view Christians, they view the church as as being devoted to the repression of all forms of sexual expression. They see the Bible as limiting sexual freedom, restricting the fulfillment of sexual desire, closed to the varied expressions of sexual desire. That which used to be more private, more sacred, more respected and rightly understood, has become more public, more explicit, more unrestricted, more in our face, in our workplaces, our bedrooms, our homes than ever before. And on the other extreme, at times even within the walls of the church, appropriate, godly sexual expression within the context of marriage can be suggested as as taboo, dirty, unbecoming. For it's from Protestant-controlled Victorian England that the idea of referring to certain parts of the chicken as white or dark meat originated. Dare we say breast or thigh in public. It's so easy for us to be confused about our sexuality and appropriate sexual expression that honors God. But thankfully, God has not been silent on the subject of sex and marriage. In fact, if you've never read the Song of Songs before, if you've never read Song of Solomon, it may shock you this morning as we walk through some of this text and you see some of the sexual imagery and references that we find here. It certainly doesn't share Queen Victoria's modern sensibilities. God understands sex to be a good gift given to us from a good God to those whom He has created to be enjoyed in one and only one appropriate context, a monogamous, heterosexual, marital union. There is no other context for appropriate, God-honoring sexual expression. The Song of Solomon is a book of wisdom. It's a book of wisdom. It falls within the wisdom literature, the wisdom genre of the Bible, with other books like the book of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, how to best interpret this book? That's been a question that's been asked by theologians, scholars, church historians for, for centuries. 
It, it, there's a lot of varying interpretations of all books of the Bible. It's probably at the top of the list with having the most varied set of interpretations and ways of seeking to understand what all's going on. Questions surround how to best interpret this book. They center on questions of unity. Is, is there a unity of theme, a unity in the plot line? Uh, who are the characters? And, and when does the consummation of this union occur? So again, is there a coherent, is there a unified theme, plot that we see from the beginning to the end? Is this book, is it just pointing to something in the future only? That which is to come. Who are the main characters? And, and how many are there? And when does the consummation of this marriage occur? For a large part of the history of the church, this book was interpreted to suggest that it's only allegory. Only allegory. That is, it's only referring to the relationship between God and His people and His love for His people Israel and then Christ and His love for the church. For most of the history of the church, this allegorical reading, that was the norm. But the problem with this interpretation is that it's not a straightforward reading of the text. Nowhere in the book is it made clear that this is the author's intention. It's not that there are not points to be made about God's love for His people that we can draw from the book, but that's not all we're intended to observe from this book of wisdom. This morning I'm going to offer, I'm going to suggest one interpretation, one outline we're going to look at. And based on this reading and understanding, see how the book is laid out and divided, and then consider, okay, so what? So what for us? How does this book of ancient wisdom speak to our lives, our marriages, our relationships today? It's a lofty task, so let's pray for help. Father, we need your help. As we now look at this book, this book of ancient wisdom, I pray for help. I pray for help for your listeners. Help them to be attentive, uh, for their hearts to be open. And give me wisdom, Father, as I walk through uh, this book, as I seek to give an overview of what's going on. And then as we look at implications, Lord, we need your help. Would you help us? I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Here's my takeaway this morning. If you take away anything, take this. Intimacy in marriage is a good gift. It's a good gift which is to be celebrated and enjoyed. And it points to an even greater gift. Intimacy in marriage is beautiful. It's to be celebrated and enjoyed. And it points to something even greater. Let me provide an outline of where we're going. I think you'll see I've got a suggested outline up here and then we're going to walk back through and look at some some of the text as I suggest this outline. First, in the very first verse you get a title. The title, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And then beginning in chapter 1, verse 2, we see the couple yearning, a yearning, a longing for each other. And that goes up to chapter 2, verse 17. And then beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, it seems as if the shepherdess, this woman in the story, she enters off into a dream. And she dreams, I'm going to say, all the way up to chapter 6, verse 3. 
And then beginning in chapter 6, verse 4, we see yearning, longing again for one another. And then, that goes all the way to chapter 8, verse 4. And then, at chapter 8, verse 5, as, as we come to the end of the book, that's where I believe we see the consummation, the joining together in a covenant marital union between this couple. Chapter 8, verse 5 to 14. So again, going back now, the title, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. I want to suggest that what you see in this Song of Songs is not a collection of love poems, but instead one love poem, one love song, the ultimate love song. And as you read, you see three main characters. You see a shepherd boy, a shepherdess, the woman, and then the chorus. And as you look at the text, sometimes above the verses, you'll have a he or a she or others. And the others just referring there to this, this chorus group. I want to also suggest that it's a love poem not primarily about Solomon. That, that is, he's not the main character, but instead one to whom the song is devoted. The author, and though again there's varying takes on this, many will will attribute authorship and, and that Solomon and the shepherd boy are, are the same person. But I'm going to suggest that it appears that, that this is someone other than Solomon. In 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1, we read this, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Pharaoh's daughter, she would not have been a Shulamite shepherdess. She, she would not have been from, from Shunem. And from what we know about Solomon and the rest of 1 Kings, it, it seems better, again, to assume that this book is being attributed to him, which is Solomon's, instead of being penned by him and primarily about him. Solomon shows up. We, we see him in a few places, but he's a distant character, and he's hardly mentioned throughout the book. If you're interested in dating, as far as like when, is, when was this book written... We think it was written around 960 to 930 B.C. Prior to the people of God being divided into the northern and southern kingdoms. But, but it would have been written during Solomon's reign. So that's again the title and how I'm at least uh, interpreting the book. And, and you'll see it's helpful to just have one interpretation that we walk through throughout. Okay, so the second section here, we see this yearning, this longing, beginning there right after the title in chapter 1, verse 2. I mentioned some of the interpretive challenges, and I, I, I joked that, that that was initially the difficult thing, but actually reading through some of this may be a little bit difficult. I should have had Pastor Tim come up at the beginning and just read the entire text, but hold with me. Here, here we go. We're going to read through some of this. So again, yearning, longing for each other. She says in chapter 1, verse 2, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your, your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. And then jumping down to chapter 1, verse 15, he says, Behold, 
You are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. To which she responds, Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. So again, we see this yearning, this longing. But the couple is not yet married. Then, moving to chapter 3, verse 1, the shepherdess enters into this dream. She says in chapter 3, verse 1, On my bed by night, by night I sought Him whom my soul loves. I sought Him, but found Him not. And she, as she's dreaming, hears Him saying, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. That's, that's in chapter 4, verse 1. And then jumping down to chapter 4, verse 7, he also says, he says this, You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. You're altogether beautiful. No flaw in you. And then this dream ends. Jump over to chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 3. As the dream comes to an end, we get this. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. So as the dream comes to an end, in chapter 6, verse 4, we see yearning, longing again. And this yearning, it gets, it gets stronger. He says there in chapter 7, verse 6, 7, verse 6, How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breast be like clusters of the vine, and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. And she responds, it goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. And then as this section ends, chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, before where I'm going to say we see the consummation of this union, we get this, 8 verse 3, His left hand is under my head and His right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Okay, so we've made it through section 4. Now, section 5, consummation, union. Beginning there in verse 5 of chapter 8. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. 
The language here of, of under the apple tree, I awakened you. It's language that indicates the full consummation of the union. Love has now been awakened and the couple is now one. They're now one physically, relationally, and spiritually. And, and we see a jealous love. A jealous love where they're devoted to one another and no other. And then the book ends, chapter 8, verse 14. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountain of spices. It closes with enjoyment. It closes with delight. Delighting in one another in the context of a covenant marital relationship. The Bible commends sexual expression. It commends sexuality in marriage in the context of a covenant marital relationship. And I now want to make three, let's say three biblical theological points and then to follow that with four practical points. Four practical points of wisdom uh, as we think about our lives, our marriages, our relationship, and our God. The first biblical theological point. Intimacy in marriage is a good gift given to those who are married by a good God. It's a good gift. God gave us marriage. We see there very early on in the Bible in Genesis chapter 2, chapter 2 verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So he says it's not good. It's not good for man alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And we know that, that out of man God creates woman. And then there in chapter 20, or excuse me, verse 24 and 25 of Genesis chapter 2, we read this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked. The man and his wife were naked and not ashamed. So pre-fall, before sin enters the picture, there's openness, vulnerability, complete vulnerability, perfect intimacy, oneness. They're, they're there, they're naked, they're not ashamed. And then we know very soon, Genesis chapter 3, when sin enters the picture, when Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden fruit, it's distorted, right? Intimacy is distorted by sin. That's my second biblical theological point. Intimacy in marriage has been distorted by sin. Genesis 3 verse 7, the eyes of both are opened. The eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. So post-fall, what enters the picture? Immediately after sin, there's shame and blame. Uh, this, this complete vulnerability is now gone. Shame and blame and insecurity enters the picture. My third point is this. The potential for intimacy in marriage has been restored in Christ. The potential for intimacy in marriage has been restored in Christ. And we see a picture of this early on, still here in Genesis chapter 3. After the fall, in 3.21, we read this, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. 
So he makes for them garments of skins and clothes them. We see a picture of future redemption. We know Christ, excuse me, Christ was the one whose blood was poured out, right? It was shed to redeem us. And in much the same way as these animals would have been sacrificed, so there would have been skin to cover them, Christ was sacrificed for us. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So in marriage now, in Christ, there is the potential for intimacy to be restored. Now for some practical wisdom. Again, I said earlier, four points we'll look at now as we think about our lives of what I hope to be practical wisdom for us. The first is this. Intimacy in marriage is not experienced, it's not awakened until the appropriate time. Intimacy in marriage is not to be experienced, it's not to be awakened until the appropriate time. We see this recurring refrain throughout the book of Song of Solomon. We read it there in chapter 8, verse 4. But we also see it in chapter 2, verse 7. We see it in chapter 3, verse 5. And we even get a variation of it in chapter 5, verse 8. That refrain is this. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. There's such wisdom here for us as we think about our relationships, and especially our relationships prior to marriage. Prior to marriage, extreme caution must be taken. It has to be taken in order to not awaken love until its appointed time. Now, the desire to be close, the desire to be connected and intimate is normal. It makes sense. That's how God made us. It's natural. But it's not right until a covenant marriage relationship has been established. Without the covenant, it can't be fully celebrated. So what are ways, how might we awaken love before it's time? Well, I think certain ways of dressing, certain types of touching, certain language, just the spending of extensive, isolated time together, all these have the potential to awaken love prior to its appointed time. Too much and and too extensive of emotional sharing. That might lead to love being awakened prior to its time. And this is why why such caution and why boundaries and, and personal discipline is so necessary during the dating and courting phases of premarital relationships. If if one desires to remain pure and to honor God. So again, intimacy in marriage is not to be experienced till its appointed time. Second point. Intimacy in marriage depends upon exclusive devotion. It depends upon exclusive devotion. Look back at chapter 6 in the Song of Solomon. Chapter 6, verse 3. Again here we we read this. I am my beloved's. My beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. And then in chapter 7 verse 10. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. 
And then if you jump down to chapter 8, verse 6, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Marriages flourish when there is exclusive devotion. When there is exclusive devotion. And marriages are damaged and they can be potentially destroyed when there's an absence of exclusive devotion. False intimacy that expresses itself whether through pornography or excessive fantasizing, isolated sexual fulfillment. All this is is just false intimacy. And it harms marital intimacy. Physical, relational, deep spiritual intimacy. None of these things can transpire with a person of the opposite sex who is not your spouse if you are to maintain marital intimacy. Recall here the wisdom of Proverbs 5. Proverbs 5, we read this, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. So a forbidden woman looks desirable. She drips honey, but in the end she leads to death. It's bitter. And on the positive end of that, at the end of chapter 5, the wisdom, the counsel is so delight then, delight always in the wife of your youth. Our modern culture today, it offers so many more opportunities for women than existed just a century prior. Think now, women have the opportunity to vote. There are so many more career options for women and we can be thankful for that. But we also have to be cautious because many of the boundaries that existed just a hundred years ago, they've now vanished or they are vanishing they're quickly disappearing it it used to take a lot of effort for an unmarried man and woman to spend a lot of time together to have a lot of communication with one another on a regular basis and society was set up to discourage this but those days are long gone and as followers of christ as those who still value the sanctity of marriage we have to take precautions we have to put in safeguards to protect the fidelity of our marriages. Oftentimes I'll hear these words. It just started as a friendship. Or we're just friends. And folks, it's impossible to be just friends. That that is impossible with the person of the opposite sex who's not your spouse. A friendship entails a certain level of intimacy. And as the friendship grows and develops, so so too the intimacy. So this is why boundaries are so critical for those relationships you have with someone of the opposite sex who's not your spouse. Things like password sharing, open internet and email access and viewing, group texts. These are all safeguards. They're a way to safeguard because of this ability now to communicate so easily with someone of the opposite sex who's not your spouse. I mean, we're, 
with technology, we're aware of this, just how quickly and easily this can go on and your spouse not even be aware. And, and it's easy to see how this happens in, in relationships and marriage. The honeymoon phase, excuse me, it ends, right? But we all know, for those of us that are married, we know the honeymoon phase ends. That's reality. And when that happens, sometimes it's almost a wake up or a splash of water in the face that, wow, I, I'm not married to the same person that, that I was with when I was dating. They, they were a lot nicer and they could be a lot more affirming. We, we wake up to reality, right? And the reality is that we're married to a sinner. If, if they're a Christian, they're, they're one who's been redeemed, but they're still in the process of being sanctified. They still sin. And so if you're not careful... You may quickly move to look to connect with someone who appears, appears more loving, more gentle, more kind. I'm excited as our men begin and embark on small, small discipleship groups of about three to five men with a few specific purposes. We want to study the word together. We want to pray together and we want to hold each other accountable. As men, we desperately need this. We desperately need accountability and the iron sharpening iron influence of one another in each other's lives. If we're to do battle, if we really want to do battle and live lives that honor God and that are faithful to our wives and to our children. And if you desire this, if you're a man here today, a member of this church, if you're not a member, if you're visiting here, you want to get plugged into this, please see me, see any one of the pastors, and we'll help you get connected with a discipleship group. Third point, intimacy in marriage is fostered by verbal affirmation. It's fostered, it flourishes when there's verbal affirmation. We see this over and over in this book. The man and woman affirm and praise the beauty and delight of each other. I was fortunate this week I had the opportunity to visit with Brother Sam. And as I was thinking about our conversation after after it had ended, and I was thinking about this text, it struck me that a lot of the things that Sam described were similar to the words of wisdom that we find in this book. It's hard to be around Brother Sam Long and and him not share of his deep love and affection for Peggy. Sam and Peggy were married 62, almost 63 years. He said, we talked a lot. We did a lot together. I told her I was sorry a lot. She was beautiful. And he didn't say this, but I'm assuming it to be true that he praised her often. He loved his wife. There was no other. He was exclusively devoted. And he verbally affirmed her, both when she was living and now even still after she's passed. Man, this is a good example for us. Do you verbally affirm your spouse? Do you praise and delight in her beauty? 
I believe it's an issue of spiritual and relational maturity and security. Spiritual and relational maturity leads to being able to verbally affirm. And spiritual and relational immaturity, or maybe you could say spiritual and relational insecurity, leads to the inability to verbally praise and build up your spouse. I think this is something true in all relationships, not just marriage, but think about this. Think about how a secure identity on the vertical, being secure in Christ, I'm His, I'm loved by my Father in Christ, how that then helps you, it leads you on the horizontal, whether it's a spouse or or a child, family member, to, to build up. To fulfill Ephesians 4.29, to, to not let unwholesome talk, but only that that's good for building up. A secure identity allows you to build up. An insecure identity makes it difficult to build others up. And this leads us to a final point. Intimacy in marriage requires sexual, relational, and spiritual maturity. Intimacy in marriage requires sexual, relational, and spiritual maturity. There's a deep interconnectedness here as we think about marriage, as we think about intimacy. Intimacy in marriage, it's a oneness, right? When God says He created the man and woman, a one flesh union, there's a oneness there that that is. It's physical, it's relational, it's spiritual. This is how God made us. Sex is more than a physical act. It is a uniting of two persons in the most intimate of ways. A uniting of their entire personhood, their personality, their emotions, their will, soul. And so it's impossibly, excuse me, impossible to be spiritually mature if not relationally and sexually mature. Our sexuality it tells us something about our spiritual maturity. And in a similar manner, our understanding of God, His ways, His desires, the transforming work that He's doing in us, that leads us to think and approach sex in the way that He's designed for human flourishing. Sex should never be used to win the covenant, but always to celebrate the covenant. It never should be used to win another person, but always to celebrate the covenant that God has established. But think about this. This is what so often happens when sexual intimacy transpires outside of marriage. One may feel that he or she can win their partner over or keep their partner in the relationship if sexual intimacy transpires. But sex outside of marriage, it doesn't have the protection. It doesn't have the guaranteed commitment of covenant love. That's why sex within marriage is so beautiful. It's beautiful because it can be enjoyed with no fear of commitment between the lovers. And it's the commitment that that brings the joy. It's the commitment that brings joy. Without commitment, you're always wrestling with whether or not you've done enough or if you're good enough. Or if he or she will continue to want you. With commitment you can relax. 
you can enjoy what God has given in the context of a covenant marital relationship. The same truth is true in our relationship with God. Think about it. We don't have to behave to earn His favor. He loves us. He loves me. He loves you. If you're here this morning, if you're His child, if you're a believer, you've been bought at a great price. You've been adopted into His family. He loves you. So you can relax and you can obey out of that love knowing that that you're His. That's why we practice the spiritual disciplines and obey. He's bought us. We're His. It's because of the covenant. God created us to flourish. He wants us to flourish. He wants us to flourish relationally, spiritually, sexually. We were made for love. This is a book. It's a book about human love. We see it throughout the book. And yet, any time that we speak about authentic, true human love, we have to speak of the Creator, the Giver of this good gift. Marriage points to the union between Christ and the church. That's what our marriages do. God says that there in Ephesians, right? In Paul's letter, he quotes from Genesis 2 in Ephesians 5, and he says when referring to this marital, one flesh union, that it's a mystery. And it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage points to an even greater union. I said earlier that intimacy is given to us by God. It's a good gift, but it's pointing to something even greater, right? An even greater gift. It's pointing to our union with Christ. In this book, the book of the Song of Solomon, we see human longing. It's all over the place. Human longing. There's a longing between this lover and the bride for one another. There's a physical longing, right? There's also a relational longing. It's not just physical, but they long to know one another. They long to know and be known by one another. So there's a physical longing. There's a relational longing. But again, anytime we speak of human love, we have to think of the giver of love, the giver of life, the giver of marriage. God's created each of us with a deep longing, a longing for Him, a longing to know Him. The early church father, Augustine, he said that our hearts, they're restless. They're restless until they rest in Him. You can find meaning and purpose. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, there is the potential for your life to have meaning and purpose, your relationships to have meaning and purpose, for them to flourish. God created each of us in His image. And that image is is a perfect triune God, a triune community of love. And He created us with a longing to know Him. But we have rejected that. Each of us has rejected that. We've gone our own way. We've sinned and we've fallen short of His standard. And we deserve His judgment. We deserve His righteous judgment. 
But God, in His grace and mercy, we read a beautiful verse in our responsive reading for 1 John 4. By this, He loved us, that He sent His Son, His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is, Christ lived a life that we, we haven't, and He died the death we deserved. He died in our substitute. He's our substitute. So if you repent and if you believe, if you fully surrender and put your faith and trust in Him, you can be saved. And your life can have meaning and purpose. It can flourish. Your relationships can flourish. And you can be part of the bride of Christ. That's who the church is. We're the bride of Christ. And we now await. We await for His return when He'll fully redeem us at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let me pray.